Well, good morning, Cedar Creek. Thank you so much. If you have no idea who I am, my name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at our Banks Mill campus of Cedar Creek. Uh, And you are all actually in the middle of an unbelievably comedic irony right now that you have no idea that you are in the middle of. If you're brand new, welcome. We're super too excited wherever you're joining us from at whatever campus or online that you're with us. What normally happens right now is what is happening right now, except for it is not me, okay? Uh, Usually we sing some songs, we gather together, we open God's word, and our senior pastor teaches a message that's part of our series, and we're in week two of our Christmas series called The Thrill of Christmas, The Thrill of Hope, uh, that we are walking through together. Uh, And this week was supposed to be uh, our senior pastor, Philip Lee. Um, Here's Here's how the great comedic irony of which until this moment you didn't know you were part of came to be. Uh, On Thursday, uh, I came into the office just like normal and I passed our senior pastor in the hallway and he said, uh, hey, do you have a Christmas sermon like in the can ready that you can preach? I was like, no, I I don't. He was like, well, Terry has has had the flu all week and... uh, my throat's a little bit scratchy, so you might want to get one ready. And I was like, oh, whatever, right? Like, God's going to say, it'll be fine. It will be fine. Everybody's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And I didn't think about it at all. Just kind of brushed it off and, and went on about my day. And then Friday, I'm uh, sitting at the house, and I get a text message that's in our creative team, kind of group text message. It's got the campus pastors and some of the people that help us plan out the message series and the stuff that we're going to talk about. And so, um, yeah, Friday afternoon, I get a text message that says, hey, guys, and it's our senior pastor, Philip. Hey, guys, I have the flu. I was like, okay. Uh, Rick is going to preach on Sunday. Rick has agreed to preach on Sunday. And I was like, kind of, I guess, kind of I did. Uh, and so we're, uh, we're going to do that. And so that's where we're at. And then it gets even better. If that's not enough for you, months ago, we planned these message series and what we're going to teach through months, sometimes even years in advance. And then we just kind of iron out the details as we get closer. But as we planned this series months ago, today's message title was Finding Hope in Uncertainty. And so for me, the message title became this week, Finding Hope in the Uncertainty, that you are certainly going to preach on uncertainty with just enough time to be certain about your message. And so that's the title of the message if you want to jot that down in your notes. But in all seriousness, I am really, really excited to be here. I'm grateful for the opportunity and love to get to do this, although it was a little bit more stressful um, than normal. But if you have your Bible, excited to have you here, you can open it up. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. We'll jump around a little bit and we'll actually start in Luke's gospel. But the bulk majority, if you want to keep your thumb there, will come out of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And I do want to remind you, if you forgot a paper Bible or you want to track along with, this day's, uh, with today's sermon or take notes or anything like that, you can take out your tablet, your device, your phone, whatever, and go to notes.cedarcreekchurch.net, and you'll be able to find all the scripture for today's message uh, in the translation that I'll be reading out of up here, so you won't get confused if maybe you're in a different translation with your Bible. You can read through it right there, and you can add notes, and at the end of it, email it to yourself. Just an easy tool to be able to stay in touch with what's going on here this morning. But Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, and again, we're going to uncover and unpack this dealing with uncertainty in our 
lives. I want to give you a spoiler alert right out of the gate. This is not going to be some sort of Oprah Winfrey self-help novel. I wish that I could have written this message in the abbreviated amount of time that I had to write this message to give you five easy steps to a certain future, right? To figure out how to become a better planner so that uncertainty never strikes your life. To figure out how to prevent uncertainty from even being an aspect that makes its way into your life. But the more that I thought about it and the more that I began to process through what I was being asked to teach and the story and the portion of the Bible that I was asked to, to unpack for us this morning, the more that I began to realize that's simply not possible. Uncertainty fear, anxiety, all of the things that come from life being uncertain are certain. We are all going to walk into them. And the reason that I landed there is I began to think through the past three years since the pandemic started. And here's what's happened. In a single moment, it feels like three years all became one year while simultaneously also becoming five years. Right, and so there's like three things that I can even tell you over the course of the past three years confidently what year they happened in. And so in a single moment, any of us and the certainty that we had about our future in the past three years we've watched be taken away. And then I thought through my life and the experiences that I've had in my life, and I realized that this isn't just confined to some sort of global pandemic, but uncertainty has always been there. I've lost loved ones. I've gained loved ones. I've seen all of these things, some things that I've planned for and some things that I didn't. But at the end of the day, the ultimate truth that we launch out this morning with is that everyone in this room can have your life drastically altered right now with your cell phone ringing in your pocket. That at any given moment, Everything, every plan that you've laid, everything that you've saved for, every step that you've taken, every choice that you've made, every decision that you've tried to guide your path with, at a single moment right now, your cell phone could ring and all of that be gone. And so uncertainty is certain. But it also fits, that truth fits with this holiday season. Not only is there all of us trying to put together 15,000 Christmas traditions into 25 days of December, and some of you are here and you are the planner, right? You know what day you were gonna get your tree. You know what day you were gonna decorate your tree. You know what trouble the elf in the shelf is gonna get into every single day from now until Christmas and where the kids are gonna find it. And all of that stuff is already planned out. And some of you are that way. And some of you feel the uncertainty of Christmas because you don't even know what to today's date is, all right? So both of those people are in this room, but in both of those scenarios, all of those plans or those lack of plans can be changed in a single moment. And that truth, that reality, isn't that far removed from what the original Christmas narrative was. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna examine two guys in the original Christmas story, and the guys are Joseph and Herod, and we'll unpack a little bit more about who they are. But in that original Christmas story, what happens to them is that uncertainty is heaped right into their lap. That all of their planning, all of their dreams, all of their aspirations in a single moment is rattled to its very core. So uncertainty is certain. But what I wanna do is I wanna first unpack two facts about Christmas that are gonna help us battle that. And then from those facts, unpack two choices that we have to make when it comes to uncertainty that will certainly well up in our lives. In Luke 
chapter 2, starting in verse 10, we find this famous passage about, uh, about the original Christmas narrative. It says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. See, I put a couple of words in there if you were looking at the screens in all caps, and that was intentionally because the two facts that I want us to understand from this famous kind of coffee cup verse that shows up on magnets and Christmas decorations all over the place, there's two key truths that if we're not careful, we skim right over and don't mention. And this is what they are. Christmas is personal. Right, like I love that Luke's gospel says, a savior has been born to who? To you. To you, and there's no expiration on this. There's no select audience on this. There's no, the angel is talking to this one person. That this is an open-ended you that, is, that was applicational for them thousands of years ago and still applies equally to all of us in this room this morning. That Christmas, the gospel message of Christmas that is going to begin in a manger that leads to a cross, that is going to pave the way to a resurrected Savior and a resurrected crown and a calling of purpose and direction for our lives starts and is for you. And here's the danger that even as I'm up here saying that, that that narrative, hey, Jesus is for you. Christianity is for you. The gospel is for you. Becomes like so much of Christmas and it just becomes white noise. Another thing that we hear, another thing that on the surface we understand and we somewhat comprehend, we've heard people tell us before. But here's a truth I wanna present you with. You are in a daily battle, most often with yourself, for that to be true for you. To convince yourself that Jesus' coming, living, dying, resurrecting was for you. And we struggle with it really in one of two ways. We could break this down into a million different subcategories, but they all really fit neatly into one of these two categories. The first reason that we struggle to recognize that Christmas is for us is because we have in our rebellion and sin against God convinced ourselves that we don't need it. We've allowed ourselves to become convinced that we don't need this Christmas thing. I have it all together. And we do it this way. It's the American dream ideology. I've pulled myself up from my bootstraps. I've made everything that I have in this life with my own hands, with my own power. Or even worse, I can make it or all of the stuff that I read in scripture that Jesus wants for me is not the stuff that I want for me. I would rather settle for what the world tells me is the important things to pursue. And so we run those things down and Christmas is just a holiday that we neatly attach a little religious tag to and then we move on from our life. Or the other way that we struggle to make Christmas personal for us, and this is one that steps on the toes specifically of those of us who have grown up like I did in the Bible Belt, is that we do the same thing with a religious tag on it, that I'm good enough. Rick, I've done it. I've been to 173,000 vacation Bible schools. My kids have been to 173,000 vacations Bible schools. I've been to Bible study. I've been to Sunday school. I know you're supposed to do this. I know you're not supposed to do this. I know you're supposed to give this. You're not supposed to give this. I know you're supposed to drink this. You're not supposed to drink this. I know you're supposed to do X and not do Y. And we run through this list and we go, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. And in doing that, our relationship with Jesus and our understanding of the gospel is predicated on how well we can perform on how many of those X's we can put on the right side of the scale. 
And the heartbreaking part of both of these is that they both result in the December the 26th feeling. And here's what I mean by that. The number one thing, the number one thing, and this, this manifests itself in a variety of different ways that when my phone blows up or somebody calls me and is like, hey, I need some help. I'm struggling with life. I'm struggling with this Christianity thing. I'm struggling with this Jesus stuff. The number one thing is not, Rick, I'm just really having a hard time understanding how Levitical law paves the way to the new covenant in Jesus's blood. Never been asked that. If you'd like to know, call me this week. We can talk about it. I'd be excited to to walk through that with you. It's never been, Rick, I'm really struggling with what the dragons are in the book of Revelation. It's never, I don't understand how the world flooded and Noah built the ark and everybody lived, but everybody died and how we're here today. I don't understand the creation narrative. I don't understand Adam and Eve. I don't understand, are we all related? It's never any of those questions that seemingly people think would be the big boulder stones that people can't move out of the way in Christianity. It's this, Rick, I've tried this thing or I've tried that thing. I've tried to do it this way or I've tried to do it that way. And the result of all of it is I'm tired that I haven't found what I thought I would find, that it hasn't led to what I thought it would lead to. And interestingly enough, nearly every time this conversation comes up, it's not from somebody who's wrestled and hit rock bottom. It may even be from somebody who on the surface has it all together. But in that moment between your pillow hitting the, your head hitting the pillow and you falling asleep, there's this quiet wrestling in your spirit that says, is it enough? Are you enough? Do you measure up? And we get tired of wrestling with that question. And the good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel that the Christmas message begins is you don't have to wrestle with it. That Jesus' birth that paves the way to his life, that leads to his death, that leads to his resurrection, that leads to his calling you to a resurrected life means that you are free from wrestling with that as soon as you can convince yourself and battle daily to surround yourself with other believers who will help you convince you that this is for you. The Christmas is personal. And then the second thing we see in this passage is that Christmas is essential. I highlighted or put in all caps the word savior because I wanna be very careful. Christmas is not essential and that here's the thing. Christmas will still happen contrary to popular belief if you do not go cut down a healthy tree and put it in your living room, okay? It will actually happen if you don't get any presents. You've all seen the Grinch, the, the, the Whoville people still sing the song after Grinch steals all of the presents, okay? All of that, none of that, none of those aspects of Christmas are essential. But the aspect of Christmas that is essential is the reconciliation piece of it. That Jesus's birth leads to his life, that leads to his death, that leads to his resurrection. And through all of that, all of us have an opportunity at reconciliation. In fact, I would contend that it's so much an essential part of our lives that it's woven into our DNA that we need to be reconciled, that even the secular world has pointed fingers at this without knowing that they're doing it or without at least intentionally knowing that they're doing it. Think about the great Christmas narratives that we watch. The Grinch, what happens at the end of the Grinch? His heart grows three sizes and he's reconciled back to the community that ostracized him. We can continue to walk through it. You go to uh, Buddy the Elf. 
Buddy the Elf and Will Ferrell, a new one. The Elf movie is eventually reconciled back. His relationship with his father is restored. Everybody believes in Santa. They sing a song and everything is made right. Even, I'll say this one, I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. I know, I'm sorry, I apologize. Don't leave, nobody storm out in anger. But I've even been told that whatever the story of that movie is, is about reconciliation as well. And then even the greatest Christmas movie of all time is about reconciliation because at the very end of the movie, Clark W. Griswold gets his bonus check and is able to put his swimming pool in so that his whole family is taken care of. Yeah, we can be excited about that. So even the secular world, as we look at all of these aspects, as we get to this season of the year, recognizes that what we needed was not another thing to give presents for, not another event to put on the calendar, but what we needed was something that would eventually pave the way for us to be reconciled. So Christmas is personal and Christmas is essential. And those two facts are going to be essential as we get to the fact that again, the promise that we have is not that there's never going to be uncertainty in our life, but that Jesus and the Christmas message being personal and essential is going to pave the way for us to have a faith that stands up in the face of uncertainty. And so what we're gonna do today is unpack Joseph and Herod's interaction in the first Christmas narrative and see how that goes. If you don't know who these guys are, Joseph is the fiance to Mary, who is going to be the mother of Jesus. Uh, He is a carpenter and he is going to be the earthly heavenly father of Jesus. And then we have Herod. Herod is the appointed king of the Jews by the Roman empire who has conquered the Jewish people. He is a brutal, brutal leader who is is consumed by his quest for power and political gain and his recognition. In fact, so much so that if you you study study Herod's life, you're going to see that eventually he has his own wife and children executed as a power move. But he is also crafty in his leadership and is very political in that he is going to make sure that everything he's ever invested in is satisfied and taken care of and protected and insured. And for both of those men, what I need us to understand this morning before we get to the story in Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 is that for both of these men, the news of Jesus coming is a bombshell. The news of Jesus coming produces a great amount of uncertainty from opposite but also very similar ends of the spectrum for each of them. And the news of Jesus is going to present them just like it does us when we encounter uncertainty with choices that we make for how we will respond. And so the first possible response that we're going to see to uncertainty in our life modeled by these men is that we would respond with faith rather than fear. Matthew chapter one, we see, uh, we see Joseph's encounter with this news for the first time. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, talking about Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And if you flip over one page, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, we get word of how Herod gets word of this uncertain news. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. A few key things that are happening here. One, again, they both get news, the same news. Now, it may be a little bit more personal in nature for Joseph, but for Herod, he would have felt that it was equally personable for him. For Joseph, this means a lot of things. It means that he can lose his status in the culture that he's in for marrying a woman who is already pregnant. It means that everything he's built for all of his life can be taken away from him. In fact, some scholars believe that it could have even meant that he would have been put to death for being complicit in the act. 
But then you can even boil it down, and I don't want to miss the country music aspect of this. At the very baseline core value, human value of it, it means that he could lose the woman that he loves and end up writing songs in Nashville, okay? That he's not the dad and God is. How do you win that battle? And then for Herod, it's both deeply personal for him as well. He can lose all of his power. This baby is known as the king of the Jews, which is actually Herod's title. He can lose control. He can lose his status. He can lose all of the things that he spent his entire life building to this point. For both of them, this uncertainty brings with it the capability of leveling all that they thought their life was built on. And then I love as we continue in Joseph's story, we get his interaction with an angel that helps him make his decision about how he'll respond to his uncertainty. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Now I wanna see and I, and I wanna understand there's some, there's some low-hanging fruit that we have a temptation to run to in, in moments like this. You're like, okay, Rick, well, obviously, yeah, Joseph is going to respond well. He has an angel who comes to him and who says, hey, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And so, of course, yeah, he's going to follow through what the angel says. But if you go and look at most of the interactions with angelic beings in the Bible, the first thing that an angel has to says, say is, do not be afraid. So I want you to understand, maybe you have the kind of faith that if you were to go to sleep tonight and have a dream with an angel that is so visually terrifying that the first thing he has to say before you'll even listen to him is do not be afraid and you would just wake up and do whatever he did, then awesome, you have a better faith than I do. If I go home and have that dream, I'm gonna wonder should I have taken a Tums before I went to bed? What did I eat last night? What has gone sideways on me? And so Joseph gets this, but interestingly enough, I want you to see what Joseph doesn't do. Joseph doesn't get, at least in any of the indication that we have in the Gospels, he doesn't have an opportunity to ask questions, to get all of his questions answered. He doesn't get to say, but this, but what about this, but what about this, what about this, what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to our life, what's going to happen to Mary. He just gets presented with, here's who the baby is, and here's who God is calling you to be in response to this. Now, interestingly enough, if you back up and you see the words that that Herod chooses to respond with is that he and everyone in the community is deeply disturbed by the news. See, there's an interesting thing. Joseph has this private communion moment with God where he's talking about God, hearing from God in this moment of uncertainty, and Herod is getting his information from everyone around him. And there's this incredible truth about fear in our lives that fear often multiplies fear and we can find people who are afraid of the same things that we are afraid of and it justifies the fear in our mind and so we walk that out. And so Herod immediately begins to get a mob around him to support him, whereas Joseph hears from God, he doesn't get all of his questions answered, but he responds by doing exactly what what the angel has told him to do. In verse 24, it says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Not with all the questions answered, not with everything turned over, not with every rock turned over, every answer uncovered, every investigation piece done. He simply responded faithfully to do what God had called him to do. But how? And again, I wish that I could go, hey, here's five points to having a faith like Joseph. But I can't. 
But what I do firmly believe as I study this passage of Scripture in light of the rest of the Bible is that one of the ways that Joseph lands there and one of the ways that we're able to produce a faith like that is to remind ourselves moment after moment after moment after moment that Crispus and the gospel message are personal for you. That these are not just abstract stories. They are for you. And then I thought about that and I thought about Isaiah's words in Isaiah 41.10, he says this, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, the interesting thing is, again, we can skim over passages like this and go, man, Rick, that's really good news. God is gonna be with us. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be dismayed. He's going to strengthen us. He's going to uphold us. But here's the interesting thing we don't often think about when it comes to good news. Good Good news is good news by nature because it it invades spaces where there can be bad news. That this is good news, this command that we do not have to be afraid is good news because what is promised in that, if you read into that passage, is that there's going to be moments in this life that should produce fear that fear would be an acceptable response for, that there's going to be moments in this life that may cause us on our own power and our own volition to be dismayed to feel that we are in over our head. And then he reminds us again thousands of years ago what we started unpacking this morning, that there's going to be a constant battle to trust in our strength, in our ability to uphold, to trust in what we can do, what we have done, what we have built, what we have saved for, what we have worked for. And so the scriptures from the very beginning to the very end are going to say, be not afraid, not because you're awesome and you're strong and you can do it, but because I have upheld you because it is my strength that goes before you. It is my strength that stands with you. If you don't know me, I'm a, I'm a, one of the things that I love to do is I'm an avid outdoorsman. Uh, I love to hunt and fish, love to spend time outside. Um, and early in my hunting career, my, my dad grew up, we were just bird hunters, and then I got into deer hunting, and now I've gotten into duck hunting, and my wife is begging me not to get any more hobbies. That's where we're at in that relationship. Uh, and so... But I grew up deer hunting with our West Campus pastor, Wes Holbrook, and he taught me this mantra for, our, for my life. And he said, Rick, it's important when you find yourself in stressful situations that you remember this. If you panic, you die. And so I beat that into my head and I still live like that. And if you panic, you die. And so I've gotten myself into some stressful situations and often it helps me keep a level head. And then here's what I would love to tell you. I'd love to tell you how hardcore I am. And I've seen some unbelievable things in the woods and I kept myself level headed. But about the age of 14, Wes Holbrook drove me to a deer stand, dropped me off in the morning. So it's pitch black dark out there. He drops me off and he's like, hey, I'm gonna go get in this other deer stand and he leaves me. And so he's been gone for maybe five or 10 minutes and it's pitch black dark. And I don't know if you've ever been in the woods completely by yourself in the pitch black dark, but the first thing that can start to happen is your mind starts to play games with you, right? Like I heard something, I saw something, I smell something. Like somehow I've gotten all these superhuman abilities in the middle of the night. But this particular day I'm up there and this noise comes from off in the distance that sounds exactly like a crying baby. Right, And so I'm sitting in the woods in the pitch black dark and this noise starts to rattle out and I now know what it was, was either a fox or a bobcat, okay? But in that moment as a 14 year old man, I would love to tell you, I was just manly and I sat up there and I took it. But I'm sitting up there and I'm like, I'm gonna die. This is it. We automatically always go directly to death though, right? Like it's WebMD, what do you have? It's always cancer. And so I'm sitting up there and I'm like, 
And then I'm starting to wrestle with the questions and panic's starting to set in and I'm going, okay, what do I do? Do I get down? Is that really a baby that needs help? Do I go check on it? But then in the back of my mind is I ask that question, like I've seen horror movies. If you get down and go try to rescue the baby, you're the first one that dies in that movie, right? And so I'm sitting there and finally the sun comes up and the noise goes away and I just recovered it. And I've thought about that often and I've thought, how do we get to a spot in our faith life where panic isn't our immediate reaction? where this hit the panic button, hit this eject button is the first, is not the first thing that we do. And I think it's the constant reminding of ourselves that our faith is personal and that our God is with us, behind us and in front of us, walking through us in every way that we do. And then I think it's also essential that we be reminded that our faith has to be personal. That in those moments of your life, in those dark, uncertain moments of your life, your grandma's faith is not going to help. Your mama's faith is not going to help. Your wife's faith is not going to help. Your husband's faith is not going to help. No one else's faith is going to be the central thing that helps you in those moments. Now, they may help you if you're in community with them to point you towards the ultimate reminder that Jesus is for you. Because you see what happens when we have a personal faith, when it's developed, it allows us to release fear and causes us to grasp onto Jesus who we're reminded saved us. And a personal faith developed pushes us to freedom. And when we hold on to fear, it pushes us to captivity, chasing control, which takes us to the next response choice. When uncertainty comes in our life, we have to respond with surrender rather than control. Herod's story continues in Matthew 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, those are the people that we call wise men who came through his castle, and it told him that they were going to see the new king. And he asked so that they might tell him where he was so that they could kill him. And they don't do that. When he realizes that they had tricked him, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Now, I want to be very careful here. So please listen to this entire thing so that we don't start any rumors. I really can empathize with Herod's response because it's what mine would be as a type A man. Now, pause. The pastor of this church did not just tell you that he would kill all the babies in Bethlehem, okay? If that's what you heard, you misunderstood. What I mean by it is what Herod does is what so many, especially men in this room, have a tendency to do when uncertainty comes is he goes, I'm gonna get ahead of this. I'm going to outrun this problem. I'm going to make sure that I hedge my bets, that everything I've insured is protected, that everything that I can close my hand around and control is controlled, and I'm going to make sure that it is all under my power and influence. And so he goes to great lengths to make sure that this king of the Jews does not have the ability to remove from him the title that he believes is rightfully his. But then we pick up in Joseph's story with his third encounter with an angel. In Matthew 2, verse 23, we get how that contrasts with what Joseph does. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. So here's what's happened in the meantime since we've left Joseph behind. They've had the baby in Bethlehem. The baby was born in a barn, Jesus. An angel shows up and says, I need you to pack up everything and move to Egypt. Now, I'm 32 years old, but even in that limited time frame, I've had the opportunity to move myself, my children, and my wife twice. Do you know what I would be completely fine to never have to do again? That. And there's no two men in a truck for Joseph. In fact, we don't have any biblical evidence that there's even two men in a camel. 
right? He's packing everything up that they can carry, loading it up and moving to Egypt. Joseph gets to Egypt, stays there for several years. Herod dies. And then Joseph gets another visit from an angel who says, hey, Herod's dead. You can now go back to Nazareth. And so, so Joseph's three visits from the angels, if we just want to go back to that low-hanging fruit and are tempted to go, well, he got visits from angels. Of course, you thought, here's what the angels have told him. Your wife's going to have a baby and you're not the daddy. You need to move your wife and your newborn baby to a completely different continent. Now that you've been there and maybe just started to get settled in, pack it all up and move them back again. So those are his three visits. And in each one of them, Joseph responds the same way with a quiet submission to God's will in his life that's grounded in his personal faith. So I wanna close this morning by just asking a couple of questions and looking at one final passage of scripture. And the the first is, what does this look like for us today? Because on some level, this question and the uncertainty that this Christmas story causes the individuals that we've looked at today is relatable for us. All of us have probably at least to some level encountered uncertainty in our own life. Now it's likely not to the same level that it was for the gentleman that we've looked at in this story, but it could be. And the truth that I want us to see is as we struggle with and look at how do we relate to this story, I want us to look at this promise found in Hebrews chapter six that I pray God would give us the ability as a church family to hold on to. In Hebrews chapter six, starting in verse 18, it says this, he who have fled to him, him being Jesus, for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Again, I wanna be careful as we read those unbelievably good news promises of the Bible to be reminded that good news is good news when it invades bad spaces and that nowhere in that passage does it say, for those who have fled to him for refuge were fleeting an unbelievably prosperous life. In fact, I don't know that there's very many people in the history of humanity who have ran away from seasons of prosperity but I love that the visual image that we've given here of our relationship to Jesus and our personal faith with Jesus is that we are fleeing to him. That life has heaped uncertainty, it has heaped fear, it has heaped questions at our doorstep that we must answer. And the answer number one has to be to run to Jesus. And so I want to encourage you this morning to figure out what does that mean for you? Because I can promise you this, that when uncertainty comes to your door, that once a month on Sunday mornings at church is not going to stand up to that. That a faith that says the blessing before you eat is not going to hold up when life seems to come up to the, when life seems to come off of the tracks. But Jesus tells us that his salvation is for you personally, that you don't have to struggle, that you don't have to strive, that he's given you all of the tools that you need, all of the equipment, all of the spiritual disciplines that you can walk in to find your faith developed, that regardless of what happens in life, you can cling to. I don't know all of the answers. I don't have every question uncovered. I don't know all of the next steps, but I do know the Jesus who's directing them. And I do know that I can walk with him. So here's the reality of where we close. The past three years have been rough for everyone. 
and I get on social media and I watch the news and, and I wanna be completely honest, I look at my social media, I look at my text messages, I look at my brainwaves, the thoughts that I've had, the things that have gone through this mind over the past three years, but even beyond the past three years. And I just have been asking myself this question, where are you? Where is your hope? Where in my life do I not believe that the message of Christmas and the gospel narrative that is encapsulated within the message of Christmas is not for me? That it's for somebody who behaves better, for somebody who dresses better, for somebody who knows more, for somebody who thinks differently, for somebody who votes differently, for somebody who was born somewhere else, for somebody who was raised somewhere differently, for somebody who brought up believing something else. And it's not for me. Or where do I believe that the gospel message is something that I've somehow forfeited because I haven't been good enough, because I haven't laid down enough, because I haven't gotten enough Sunday school answers right? And where can I, during this season, hit pause on the craziness to reflect on what a cradle that leads to a cross that ultimately leads to a crown invites me to? If I will accept it as personal and for me. And then I will do it again tomorrow and then I will do it again tomorrow, and then I will do it again tomorrow, and each time I do it, I will find a deeper and truer joy because of who Christ is and what he has done on my behalf. And then the last question, and maybe the one that's been the most difficult as I've looked at my social media, my brain waves, what I see on the news and the world around us is, are we a people, for those of you who do believe that this is personally for you, are we a people marked by hope? Are we marked by hope, right? Because my fear is, and, and this is myself included in this, my social media, my conversations, my lifestyle, my everything can tell you an awful lot about me. What I believe, what I don't believe, what I vote for, what I vote against, what I stand for, what I stand against. But my fear is, and I honestly believe this, I've thought about this all week and whether or not I was gonna say it, that the last three years has perhaps given Christianity the greatest platform that it's had in a long time to stand and declare hope in the face of questions to say, I don't know the answers, but I know that I have hope. And my fear is that we've so forgotten that this is personal, that this is for us. We've so been caught up in the distractions of everything else that's going on in the world, the same way we get caught up in distractions of everything else that's going on in Christmas, that we have forfeited that and continue to forfeit that opportunity to go, no thanks, I'd rather argue about this. No thanks, I'd rather point to this. Or that we've become just like everyone else and go, well, what's gonna happen to my family? What's gonna happen to my kids? What's going to happen with the vaccine mandates? What's gonna happen if I lose my job? What's gonna happen if we don't get vaccine mandates? What's gonna happen if we do get the vaccine? What's gonna happen with all that? And we've run to those questions instead of simply being a people who will ground ourselves in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, I don't know all of those answers, but I know the God who does. And I hope in him and I cling to him and I flee to him and I run to him. And so I don't know. Because the reality is all of us are either clinging to an illusion of control or have already recognized we don't have it. And in not having it, we find the freedom to walk in faith that says, even when I don't have the answers, the answers aren't what's sufficient, Christ is. That in every aspect of my life, it is the sufficiency of Christ that I testify to, that I walk to as 
ultimate. And my prayer for us as a church family, my prayer for our entire faith worldwide is that we would be a people who get our heads out of the sand and realize that we have an opportunity to declare that Christ is supreme to everything. Will you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you. God, thank you for meeting with us in this place this morning. God, thank you for what we celebrate in this season. God, thank you that this message, this gospel, this good news that we saw manifested in the first Christmas is for each of us. God, I pray for those in this room who are wrestling, who are tired, who have been trying to do this Christianity thing and it feels like December the 26th. The presents are packed, the decorations are put away, there's supposed to be all of this joy that they felt and they have those blips and those moments on the radar. But if they're being completely honest, they're just tired and feel that they're looking for more. Christ Jesus, I beg you this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit to step into those lives, to step into those hearts and to save those people that they would realize it's not about them and their performance and their effort and their abilities. That you've already done it. That the invitation is not coming to, it's coming, see that it's been done and be transformed not by your effort and your ability, but by my goodness and my grace. Will you save them this morning, Jesus? May this Christmas be the Christmas that they find hope. But God, I also pray, I repent. I lament in my own life where there's been so many opportunities in the past three to five years to make your name known, to make your name great. And I've clung to the uncertainty of the world around me. I've debated interest rates and politics and anything else. Instead of simply saying, you know what? I don't have the answers. But I follow a God who does. And he's enough. Jesus, may you give me a heart today. May you give me a heart tomorrow. May you give me a heart every single morning for the rest of my life that is reminded that it's your goodness and your grace that fuels and purposes my life. May I recognize that that's a calling to joy as I surrender and submit to your will. It's in your name we pray, amen.